The Money Cafe is brought to you by Eureka Report, your one-stop shop for all things finance. To sign up for your free 15-day trial, head to eurekareport.com.au. Now it's time to enjoy today's episode. Hello, I'm Alan Kohler, founder of Eureka Report Finance, presenter on ABC News and a columnist for The New Daily. And I'm James Thompson, senior Chanticleer columnist at the Australian Financial Review. And we are The, the Money, Money Cafe. Cafe. Um, now, um, you had a very interesting idea this morning about replacing Richard Goiter. Yes. Um, with Nicholas Moore. Yes, so it's the, that is the male. They're, they're, they're jumping out of trees to back uh, Nicholas Moore. Yeah, right. So, uh, but but what's he doing? Is he is he sitting around? You know, I mean, surely oh, he's got a like he's he's, he's got a zillion jobs. Has he? Um, what jobs? He's the uh, envoy to Southeast Asia for the government. So oh. he's the guy who's trying to get uh, all better trade links to Southeast uh, Asia. He is the chairman of the Centre for Independent Studies. He's the chairman of the Smith family. Uh, he's got a few tech businesses. Um, what he has studiously avoided, though, is working with any ASX companies. Right. So, can is this the opportunity that gets him onto the? Uh, so, but why are people talking ASX about him? Points? What's what what caused his name to be pulled out of the hat? Well, I think uh, universally admired, uh, very nice fellow, um, but also has a bit of aviation experience. Uh, you go back to 2007 and Macquarie bid, uh, launched a bid with Orco for Qantas. But more recently, he was the government's man, uh, the sort of government's liaison when Virgin went under. And so that's – the idea is that he knows his way around an aeroplane. What does that mean, he was a liaison? Well, the government wanted to sort of protect its interests – you know, sort of Virgin was a national of national significance. So and who do you go to but Nicholas, Nicholas Moore? Moore? I don't know why they went to Nicholas Moore, but that's what they did. So, um, and what about Goiter's um, uh, announcement? Because it seems to me that it was it was a classic pun decision, pun announcement, because everyone was able to say, uh, like Qantas flights, Richard Goiter's <laughs> departure has been delayed. Yes. Um, I think it, well, it was a yeah good for the headline writers, but I think it was also probably the solution where um, everybody's both happy and unhappy. You know, I think I think eventually got the message that he had to go to. Uh, that was the right message to get. Um, but all those shareholders telling him it was time to go also didn't want him to hurry out the door. I think he's sort of seen as the. You know the grown up in the the wise head in the room, and they you know I, I, getting I him to stick around is not a bad call. You didn't you didn't in your piece this morning in the Financial Review didn't say this quite as clearly as I'm about I'm about to say it. But yes. but the implication was that um, uh, Vanessa Hudson's appointment, i.e. the person who's been uh, Alan Joyce's number two, yep. is not the reset required for Qantas, and that what's the uh, what's Important is to get a new chairman entirely, who then brings about the cultural change. And I think, I think right, you yeah. seem to be suggesting, without actually saying it, that Vanessa Hudson will not do that on her own. That what's required is um, a completely different chairman. Well, yes, I was suggesting that she she definitely will not do that on her own. 
Um, I mean, she's a new CEO. She's been a CEO for five minutes, like. And she's part of the old guard. Well, that's the point. And all of the old guard is still... So So, I, I, my implication probably goes further. The new chairman would would review the appointment of Vanessa Hudson, I, I think. Now, that doesn't mean she's going to go, but if you're the new chairman, you come in here and you look around and you say, right, so everyone running the airline is still um, MOA, mates of Alan. The, the, the same team's in place is... Do, do the same people who brought us into this mess get us out of it at a manage, at a management level? And what do we? Where does Vanessa? Yeah, fit well, into look, that? I reckon clearly the answer is no. Yeah, I, I mean, there, there has to be senior management changes. I'm not sure whether Hudson's part of that, but you know, I mean, it's interesting that the you the want ch- the new chairman to say, "Hey, Vanessa, n- n- no, nothing personal, but I'm going to have to look at the management team. I, I just want to be sure that it's right." Yeah. That's all right. Isn't I mean, I, yeah, and I think it's interesting because the the, the the what you were painting, and I think is is right, is that the new chairman who comes into Qantas whenever that happens is basically going to be working full time. Yeah, and I think it's interesting because uh, you know what's his name, Goida. He's got three other chairmanships, right? Yeah. He's is nowhere near full time, but but he gets seven hundred fifty thousand for being chairman of Qantas, yeah, right? It's a good good way. So that's that is actually arguably. A full-time salary. Yeah. You know, it's not a full-time... Arguably. No, but, well, it's not a full-time CEO salary, right? Um, although yeah. it is for a lot of companies. A lot of companies, yeah. Yeah. I mean, so so you could actually justify working full-time. Absolutely. At $750,000 a year. I've, I've got to say, this is um, this is an issue I've had. You see these companies going to crisis. I've always thought, wouldn't it be better just to pay the chairman more and say, it's a full-time gig? Yeah. But then I guess you get this point where are they executive chairman and do that does that do they meddle too much in operations? Where's the sort of church and state challenge? I don't know. It's not perfect, but um, anyway, that's good. Uh, now that you've been to an energy summit, you have the Fin Review, the Fin Review, which is now a, um, an events business. <laughs> yes, is it not? Oh yeah, we've got plenty. Once of a events. week, there's a there's a <laughs> summit. There's, well, more, there's, uh, much, there's more summits than the Himalayas. There's much to the discuss in this country, uh, Alan, and we uh, <laughs> like to keep the beating pulse of the nation uh, <laughs> under close scrutiny. Yeah, but you must be spending half your time sitting in the audience of some summit, taking notes, getting bored. Well, <laughs> well I wasn't bored at the Energy Summit, Alan, because I was, I was depressed. Depressed? Uh, this is the seventh time we've done the Energy Summit. I've been to all of them, and I reckon the message for the first – Five was pretty similar. Like, you know, we need to get on with it. It's hard. We need to get on with it. It's hard. And then last year we had the uh, Labor's legislated emissions cut and it was a bit of backslapping. No, we've got an emissions target now. Let's get on with it. We need to get on with it. Um, and this time it's, yeah, this is really hard. <laughs> yep. <laughs> we're, we're really struggling. I mean, you know, everyone's sort of saying the right things, but... I don't think there's any chance, or the view is, where there's no chance we hit the 43% emissions reduction, mainly because it involves renewable energy going from 30% of our power to 82% of our power. It ain't going to happen by 2030. And, and it's not necessarily because we're not building enough renewables, although that's slowed down too, but transmission and storage just isn't moving quick enough. Mm. So, well, also, the other thing is that the companies presumably at the summit, a lot of them, are having to reduce their own emissions by 4.9% per annum. Yeah. 
um, and call it 5%, that's 5% first year, 10% second yeah. year, yep. 15% third year, 20%. I mean, most of these companies are nowhere near capable of doing this. No, no. That, I mean, that, that's true. That's no a, way. That's another issue. Um, the, the other point I think it's really interesting, and we saw a really good example of this on, third, on um, Wednesday night, Exxon goes and buys this company called Pioneer Oil, right, in the US, $50 billion US deal. Now, Exxon has spent most of the last decade saying, oh, we're getting out of fossil fuels, hydrogen, green energy. No, they're not. No, they're not. <laughs> this is – and Shell's done the same thing. These guys are doubling down on the last sort of decade of oil, hopefully the last decade of oil, but you don't spend $50 billion if you only think there's a decade in it. So I just feel like some of the there's, – there's backsliding everywhere – Oh, I don't know. I, 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 I come away sort of. Now, surely you must. You must have come away, and I certainly am in this place where what we need to do is get ready for the actual yeah. impact of climate change. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because it's happening. You know, India and China are building tons of coal-fired power stations. Yeah, emissions are not being reduced at all. Still rising. Yep, demand Ex- for energy still going up. So it's going to happen. So uh, we need to get ready for. Yeah. And, and the, the message, the message about this summer, I mean, the, the the word terrifying was used on stage, and, and who said terrifying? Terrifying, uh, Zoe Witten from Pollination, and her view is that it's going to be a bad bushfire summer. The air quality is going to be bad. You know, we had a few of the power guys saying, "Get your candles out because we're likely to see rolling blackouts, or possibly going to see rolling blackouts." And Zoe, Zoe said, "Get your air purifier out because." It's going to be ugly. Is, now, uh, so rolling blackouts because everyone's going to have their air conditioners on. Yeah, and there's and the the coal there's not enough coal fired power basically. Yeah. So um, now hopefully neither of those things eventuate, but the possibilities there, um, and and you know, it's hard to see how we don't escape with a few fires. So let's let's hope for the best, but it's just. I think there's there's a dose of reality here. It's expensive, it's hard, it's complex, and it's going to take a lot longer than we thought. You've got um, housing, mortgage pain versus rising prices in your agenda as an agenda item. What do you mean? Well, I just uh, the RBA stability review last week was really interesting. Um, it's one of those things, you know, where I always wonder about this. You know, that on average, everything looks okay, and then there's some people really struggling. You know, 15% of people are struggling to uh, have less income than their expenses. Now, that does include some expenses that are large but hard to get rid of or hard to change, hard to adjust, like school fees and private health insurance. But 15%, up from about 3%, it's a it's a growing pocket of pain that, yeah. I, that I can see. But overall, picture's okay, you know. We're, so that we're 15, handling it's interesting because right. that fifteen percent is fifteen percent of variable rate borrowers, mm. um, which right, which yeah. I reckon. I mean, we don't know for sure, but I reckon that's about five hundred thousand families. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yep. Going backwards. Yep. Yep. So that's a lot. That's a lot. That's it's a half, lot. half a million families, uh, ending each month. Uh, in the red, in the or close yeah. to it, yeah. So, and those people can can and, and I assume are adjusting their lifestyles, but I just I'm a bit like you, like five hundred thousand families, that's a lot. 
And but the overall picture is, oh, well, the banking system's going to be okay. Well, yeah, I sort of get that, but I think you've got to think. What's the impact of five hundred thousand families in the red at the end of each month on stocks, hmm. consumer discretionary spending, uh, the way money goes through the economy? I, you know, I think there's implications from it. I just think it's interesting, and, and yeah, it's one of those things where you don't want to look too closely at the uh, at the average. I think it's important, but it, you know. It can mask the real story. So just before we move on to questions, uh, just a quick uh, comment about Gaza, what's going on in Israel and yeah. Gaza. Um, I mean, obviously the humanitarian aspect of it is horrendous and, you know, deeply disturbing, I guess. Totally. But um, financial, in terms of finance, this is the Money Cafe. Um, uh, what it, In terms of financial markets, etc., it really comes down to what happens with Iran's oil exports which have increased this year from 500,000 to 2 million barrels a day mm. uh, because America has been prepared to overlook the sanctions um, in order to offset the production cuts by Russia and Saudi Arabia. Yep. And it's hard to see that continuing. It is, yeah. You know, uh, unless uh, unless Iran kind of basically hangs Hamas out to dry completely, they're going to have to... Their, their exports are going to fall. So there's going to have to be... Um, uh, an increase of production by others if there's not to be a big increase in the oil price. I mean, if if yeah. if um, I had lunch with a, a oil expert the other day, and he reckoned that if um, uh, if Iran's exports go back to five hundred thousand barrels a day, oil goes to one hundred and fifty dollars. Mm. Wow! Um, so, and that and that obviously is as if if Saudi Arabia doesn't make up the difference. I don't know if they can actually. Yeah, I, I, pr- probably not in the short term. But, I mean, there was hope even with Saudi Arabia who who introduced production cuts midway through the year. There was hope that uh, the Saudis and the US were sort of working towards a deal where those production cuts would be eased and production would be restored. Um, that's clearly off the table for the moment. Uh, the Saudis in Israel had been working towards a quote-unquote normalisation deal that's off the table for the moment. So, you, yeah, the, the the potential for the region to be dragged into this is what everyone's watching. But it is fascinating. It hasn't happened so far. I mean, it's fascinating and good. a long way to go here. Yeah. So yeah, that's what everyone's watching, though. Okay, questions. Yeah. Starting with Ben. On your The World in 2050 episode, did we have one? We did. Remember that the student asked us a great question. What oh, the yeah, that's right. Yeah, like yeah. In 2050. Uh, uh, Alan James said, the challenge of climate change will create big winners and big losers. I'd be very interested to hear more of your thoughts on this. Who do you think these cohorts are? What would they look like? How do I become a winner? <laughs> <That's> <laughs> well, we all want to know, Ben. Well, we in- want to be winners. Interestingly, at the moment, the winners are the people who we thought were going to be the losers. The, the, the owners of coal-fired power in this country are creaming it. Origin and AGL are doing really well because wholesale electricity prices have gone through the roof because power is scarce and the the market's in transition. But will they remain the winners forever? Probably not. And this is the thing. There's going to be different points in the cycle. There'll be different winners and losers. But to Alan's earlier point, I think anyone that can create products that help with climate adaption, winner. Unquestioned, unquestionable winner. Now, there'll be lots of money thrown at that, but you can see that governments around the world, to, to your point, Alan, over the next five years are going to be throwing money at climate adaption solutions. So 
people who are building flood levees, people who are helping with bushfire resistance, they could be winners. Um, renewable power producers will be winners. Uh, companies that can reduce, that they can uh, create, um, you know, easy forms of battery storage should be winners. I mean, I think there's lots out there. Um, Certainly going to be a need for storage. Yeah. Lots of storage. But losers, I mean, agribusiness is going to be up and down. It's going to be lots of volatility in lots of those climate-exposed mm. sectors. So um, I think be careful. Insurance companies are probably going to be winners and then losers. Yeah, I think that's right. Yep. Uh, Chris says, I look forward to your chats every week. Could you provide your opinions on super wrap accounts, benefits and disadvantages? I'm mid-30s and fortunate enough to have a fairly healthy super balance. My my financial advisor has suggested it might be time to move to a wrap account. Yeah, well, the advantages are that uh, you own the shares. They're in the... the, the the assets the investments are uh, are managed by somebody else but you own them so that you get the tax benefits and so on of whatever um, but the thing is that we, uh, I've always felt that when a financial advisor says what you need is a wrap account be careful of the fees make sure that you uh, f- uh, question them carefully about how much it's going to cost yep. how how will that change from the previous set of fees. Uh, because um, quite often, possibly not anymore, because most financial advisors these days are highly ethical. Um, the reason for pushing a client into a super wrap account was to get a bigger fee. Yes. So Good advice. That's all I'd say. Yep. Christopher says, thanks for the entertaining podcast, although I miss... Oh, come on. You miss, miss me and James Kirby. Well, I miss Kirby too. Yeah. So fair enough. Um <laughs> But he uh, t- turned, tuned into our 15th of October episode, 2020 episode, entitled Our Top Three Best Stocks. And my best three stocks on that day were CSL, Avita <laughs> Therapeutics and P- Pure Food Tasmania. CSL's down 20% since then. Avita Therapeutics is down 40%. And Pure Foods Tasmania is down from $1.56 to one cent. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God! So, uh, so clearly the lesson here is don't pay any any attention whatsoever to anything I say. To, to, to be fair, uh, I I've known you a long time, Alan, and that has always been one of your rules on this podcast: do not listen to any stock that I suggest. <laughs> well, in fact, if I suggest a stock, short it. Yes. <laughs> Maybe it's like uh, you know, there's uh, that that. Kathy Wood from Ark Invest. There's an ETF that goes on the opposite side of all her trades. Oh, yeah? Maybe we need a yeah uh, anti cola an anti cola <laughs> ETF. That's yeah. right. Now that'll be a big winner. Uh, Meng says, "Dear Alan, there's a lot of interest on the government's proposed changes to taxation on super funds. Is it possible to have a roundtable discussion on this on the Money Cafe or Talking Finance?" May I suggest that the first four invited to the table be the editor-in-chief, the chief steerer, the head chook and the super coach. Although we need the super coach, so she's smarter than all of us. Yeah, sorry, Ming, we only have square table rese- uh, discussions <laughs> in this place. Uh, where are we? Zach. Zach. A few years ago, I purchased Javelin Minerals Limited, JAV shares, for the price of 0.3 cents per share. I'm now attempting to sell them for the minimum tick size of 0.1 cents per share. Mm. My sell order, or is it one cent? Is it 0.1 or one no, cent? No, it's, it's, it's a tenth of a cent, I think. Tenth of a cent, yeah. 
My sell order has now been open for several weeks. At what point will this company be delisted? If I can't sell the shares, doesn't this mean the company has a market value of zero? Someone put Zach out of his misery. <laughs> Poor Zach. Um, yeah, you sure I didn't recommend it? <laughs> um, Javelin Minerals is one of those things, one of those... Uh, I think there's several thousand of them on the, actually on the uh, – <laughs> no, so, certainly several hundred on the ASX whose only asset uh, really is their listing. Yes. It's the fact that they are listed. And, in fact, what's going on at the moment is that Jav- Javelin is the subject of a backdoor listing. It's, it's um, uh, in a trading halt right. and it is proposing to buy, in return for issuing shares, another company which is a private company. I can't remember the name of it. And um, this company owns some exploration uh, rights mm. in Uganda. Mm. Rare earths or something like that? I think it might be lithium. Right. Oof. But uh, uh, so, Zach, I think you're about to become the proud owner of some exploration <laughs> tenements in Uganda. So there you go. Whether that allows you to get your uh, line of shares away, I'm not sure, but I guess – Bit of patience, you might see what happens. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. You never know. Uh, Danielle says, I'm a female student doing an assignment on mining finance and would love if you would consider the question for your show. What's the overall sentiment towards the dilution of shares in Australia? Is it a problem or an accepted practice? Oh, it's both. Yeah. It's both an accepted practice (laughs) and a problem. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, um, when it comes to mining, a... uh, Shareholders might accept some dilution when there's, in, like, like for Javelin Minerals, well, Javelin, an acquisition. Javelin Mineral shareholders, like Zach, are about to be diluted yeah. big time. Yeah. Now, they might not love that, but if, if, it, if the dilution is in relation to an acquisition that eventually grows the value of the company, then they might accept it. But if the dilution comes through a crappy acquisition, then shareholders hate it. I mean, dilution means that you own less of the uh, company's future well, you, profits you, than you, you did. A, well, you own a less a smaller a small percentage, price. but you own the same number of shares. So I've, I, in, in companies that I've owned, uh, you know, which tend to dilute because they're absolute dogs, Yes, um, I've always paid attention to the, value, the actual value of the shares, not the percentage of the company that I own. Yes. But the, the number of shares times... The value yep. of them is yep. what matters. Yeah. Uh, and I don't think really the percentage that you own of the company matters. And I mean, dilution really only matters for somebody who controls somebody controls a company with 40% and they get diluted down to 20%. Suddenly they don't control the company anymore. Uh, that matters. You're, you're, you're squinting at me through yeah. half-closed eyes there, Thompson. I, I think dilution does matter when you're being... When the company's going backwards, and I think the good example recently is Star Entertainment Group. They've done two capital raisings this year. The, the number of shares was about eight hundred million at the start of the year. It's going to be two billion by the end of the year, and this is a company going backwards. So, you now own a smaller slice of something that's in bigger trouble. Yeah, all I'm saying is that the, what matters most for Star Entertainment shareholders is what's the value of each share. Yeah. Sure. That's all. I mean, and, yeah. I, and it's fair to say that probably with that kind of dilution, the value of each share has gone down yeah. quite a lot, but yeah. uh, maybe not. I don't know. Depends. Yeah. Can you make sure we end up in the footnotes, please, Danielle, of your assignment? Uh, if, <laughs> if any of that was coherent. 
Nicholas says, I, uh, I know, Stephen, you're not on this week, but I watch Alan's finance report on YouTube every night. I love that the ABC is embracing other ways for us to access our publicly funded finance content. Uh, so I think YouTube has worked out that I'm an Alan Cole fan because I literally, it's literally the first thing I see if I open <laughs> up the app uh, after 7.25pm. Very good. Well, that's good. I remember you were talking about charts on another episode and mentioned that you're involved in choosing what ends up being in the financial report each night. Uh, my f- favourite chart is from last year, the rate of living in sin. It was on the rise. My question is what happens with the other with the presenters? Do Daniel, David and Elise get to choose their own charts and or content. Oh, do they have to go through the chart arbitrator? Are you the chart judge? No, no, on the days that... The charts are. On the days that uh, David, Elise has moved on um, and Daniel do it, uh, I'm otherwise engaged. Right, okay. I'm not there. I've noticed actually, Alan, that a few of our ideas sometimes end up on the... uh In in charts, enshrined in charts. I'm quite shocked when I see that. I cast my... I think there the was net quite wide. There was one the uh, not too long ago about we were talking about the Mexican economy overtaking China as the US trade partner, and there it was that night. And I thought, wow, it's a small world. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Glenn says, "G'day." In the last episode, Stephen said that interest rate rises are actually targeted at businesses to stop them investing, such as building a new warehouse. If that's true, then why are we constantly told we need to increase productivity? Isn't that counterintuitive? So the Reserve Bank raises rates hoping that business doesn't take their profits, doesn't invest in wages or growing or into growing, but do pay bigger dividends, shower your CEO and board, in, which is not inflationary, or buy back shares. Seems nonsensical and an efficient way to increase inequality. Vote yes, says Glenn. Uh, I'm not, yeah, I, I, didn't I, hear, I didn't hear that from Stephen, I confess. Um, I don't know if that's what the RBA is trying to do. Well, they're certainly, I don't think they're, they are trying to reduce activity yes, they in are the economy. To That's the, yeah. They're trying to reduce activity in the, in the economy by both businesses and households. Yep. Um, uh, Glenn th- does make a good point that they are whinging about productivity at the same time, which does require generally investment. So, And, and business investment is much lower than it was. Yes. Business investment has been falling. Uh, so... Uh, that is, and that is a problem with productivity. Yes. But the, I guess the one thing that RBA would be hoping to do, Glenn, is to, in, by increasing the cost of capital, it forces companies to make better decisions about how they spend it, how they allocate it, and hopefully they'll allocate it into the most productive thing. So I, I, I take your point about counterintuitiveness, but the, the RBA would be hoping that because the cost of capital is rising, businesses will make the best decisions to use that capital. Speaking of the RBA, I was, I was going through my ABC emails yesterday. I don't do this very often, actually, about once a week or so. Right. Once a month, uh, I go through ABC emails because there's so much bloody spam. Um, and uh, I found, right buried in deep, in there was an email from Jim Chalmers, the treasurer. Oh, um, <laughs> buried deep in there was an email from the treasurer. Yes, Alan. <laughs> <laughs> Well, responding to a piece I had on Sunday, which was two weeks ago, or a week and a half ago, right, uh, in which I said that the the government and the Reserve Bank are at odds over what full employment, yeah, uh, okay. yep, what, uh, how they define full employment, yep, and his and I said that they are at odds, and that you know the Reserve Bank wants four and a half percent unemployment, uh, and uh, the 
the uh, government has now got a, a fairly woolly definition of full employment, which is that everyone who wants a job should be able to get one without looking too, for too long. Yeah. Um, but I did uh, suggest that this must mean unemployment of less than 3.7%, which is the current rate. So what's the, if Because if it wasn't, what's the point of having a white paper mm. if we're currently at full employment or the full em, um, that unemployment needs to rise, right? Yeah, I see uh, where you're coming from. Yeah. So, you know, that was proposition. So he said in his email, which was one line, saying, um, uh, you should have asked, did, did you ask Michelle Bullock uh, if, if we are at odds? Because she said in a public statement that she fully agrees with the government's definition of full employment. Right. So everyone's woolly. <laughs> well, it's, it, is, it is true that Michelle Bullock did say that. Right. But it's rubbish. <laughs> I mean, they just say anything, these people. <laughs> oh, I hope you get another email. Does, um, does, does Jim listen to the podcast? This podcast? Yeah. Someone, I'm sure someone will draw it to his, his attention. Yes. It's possible. Yeah. I agree. Where are we going Let's to? finish with David. It's David. a good question. Righto. Good early call on inflation being dead. And therefore, interest rates being on hold, you stuck your neck out early and got it right. The herd are now saying higher for longer. Well, my prediction is the September quarter national accounts will be negative. The alarm bells will go off in Canberra and our first rate cut will be in February or March 2024. The rise in interest rates bit the economy hard in mid-August. Unemployment hasn't risen yet because businesses are so worried about not having workers after COVID labour shortages. Can you have a recession with full employment? This is a really, that's a really good question. And there is a school of thought now contemplating that both in America and Australia. And I guess the answer is if you did have a recession with full employment, it would be horrible for stocks because companies would be effectively hoarding labour and keeping their costs high while their revenue fell away as activity slowed in the, um, due, due to the recession. So maybe you can. Maybe, I mean, it would be highly unusual. Never really happened before that I know of in recent history. Um, but I think this is the thing, right? And and maybe David's right. We're all, we're expecting sort of something weird to happen that we're expecting that this time it's different, that unemployment won't sort of tick up and we'll manage this soft landing. It would be unusual. It would be unusual. So well, it, it depends a bit on uh, what we were just talking about, the definition of full employment. Yeah. I mean, because yeah. the Reserve Bank has clearly stated that unemployment needs to rise to 4.5%. Yeah. yeah. That's, its, that's its, both its prediction and its aim. Yeah. yeah. So uh, is that full employment? Yes. No. I, I mean, that, yeah. that, the Reserve Bank thinks 4.5% uh, is full employment uh, because that's how it defines full employment as being the rate of unemployment that doesn't cause inflation to accelerate. Yeah. So that's a different definition to – this what, gets down to, you know, my kind of statement that they're at odds with the government. Yeah. Because the, the Reserve Bank says full employment is the rate of unemployment that causes inflation not to accelerate, right? Yeah. It, it is, it's a fascinating question, though. It is. So, so but yeah, but uh, past recessions have meant 10% unemployment, right? That's – in a sense, uh, the recession, uh, a recession is defined as uh, two, two consecutive quarters of negative yep. GDP, right? Yeah. 
So if we have two consecutive quarters of negative GDP, that's a recession. But I reckon the proper definition of a of a recession is high unemployment. Yeah. Not yeah. GDP. GDP is not relevant to anybody really, apart from economists. Yes. Yes. What's relevant is unemployment, and if and I would say, David, if uh, unemployment doesn't rise much, it's still kind of in the fours. Doesn't go above five percent. It's not really a recession, is all I'd say. Yeah, but to follow on that question, though, it's not going to be easy, given the RBA's forecast, for the RBA to be cutting rates in February or March 2024 if unemployment hasn't moved. Oh, exactly. No, no. I, so I, I, David I, so can't I, have it both ways. No, and I don't think – so I think David's call there that uh, the first rate cut will be in February or March 2024 is wrong. Yeah. It just won't happen. Because unemployment won't have moved. That's right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and the, the, there's no way the Reserve Bank is going to cut interest rates because uh, because GDP is minus 0.1%. Yeah. No way. It's not their mandate. <laughs> no. no. They're not going to do it. So, um, yeah, there you go. So, that, so, which brings us back, dare I say, to why people are on the higher for longer train. Because rates will be higher for longer. Yeah. Yeah. So. Sure. Well, rates, uh, rates are neither going to be cut nor I'm increased. not criticising David, but it is an interesting sort of balance. Well, yeah, but also, but also the question is, are they higher? I mean, they're higher than they were, but oh, yeah, 4.1% cash rate is the, is the average of the past 30 years. Yeah. I've told you this. Yeah, oh, you have. <laughs> you have told me this several times, but the debt levels we have are not the average we've had Correct. for the past 30 That's years. Right. So yeah. you, sorry, you, you can't keep making that argument with me. No, I'm going to get Jim Chalmers to email you. Uh, <laughs> maybe, oh yeah, I'll you, to, maybe I'll get him to call you. He'll do your bidding, will he? I'm sure he will. <laughs> well, he'll, he'll, he's more likely to talk to me after you left his email unattended for two weeks. I know. I did, I did reply to it yesterday and, <laughs> and said, sorry. <laughs> um, where are we? Oh, thanks for listening, everyone. It's been uh, great to talk to James. Again, I'll be back next week with Stephen Main. So if you've got a question, send it to the Money Cafe at EurekaReport.com.au. Until then, I'm Alan Kohler, founder of Eureka Report, etc. And I'm James Thompson, Senior Chanticleer Columnist at the AFR. See you soon. <laughs>